Hey, what's up? This is Jason with Centerpoint Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. I'm excited that you joined us today. We're going to be jumping into the message in just a minute. But before we do, I just want to remind you that we want to hear your story. So if this impacts you in any way, please send us a message. Go to centerpointtn.com and click on contact us. Let's jump into the message. Thankful that you're here today. We are on part two of this series called Get Out of Jail Free. Last week, let me recap for those of you that didn't have the pleasure of hearing my message. It was called The Macedonian Call. And we talked about Paul on his missionary journey. He received the Macedonian call. It was a vision from the Lord. I simply said, come help us. And so we pivoted to see where in your life is the Macedonian call all around you without you even even realizing it or without us even realizing it. And it's to recalibrate our minds with what's important to God. See, the world's going to tell you that you need to put a hotel on Park Place, but to God, the currency is always people. Now, if you have a hotel on Park Place, I'm happy for you, but that's not what it's about. It's always about people. So we're going to be continuing on this journey of Paul's. He's on his second missionary journey. Missionary journey just simply means he's on tour. He's taking the show on the road. And he's about to enter Philippi, modern-day Greece. You recognize it from, he wrote the letter to the Philippians church, to the church in Philippi. But we're going to be in Acts. We're in the same chapter, I think, as last week. And, And so we just had Lydia. She gets converted. And now we're going to pick up where we started last week, Acts 16, 16. And to remind you, when we see the word we on here, it's written by Dr. Luke. And this is the time when his journey kind of coincides with Paul and Silas. So he's walking with them. 16, 16. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had the spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, I command that you come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, there's a lot going on in just these couple of verses. By the way, some of you would have acted the exact same way as Paul. So annoyed that then he's like, okay, I'll perform an exorcism. This is the equivalent of when your kids say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you're like, stop or I will turn this car around. You know you're not going to turn this car around. If you're a kid and you're in here, your parents are never going to turn this car around. They've already put a deposit on the hotel. Can't get your money back. Now, they may light your backside up, and then they'll say, spare the rod, spoil the child, and can I get an amen? But there's a lot going on right here. So first of all, we see that there's this young girl, and Scripture tells us that she's a slave. Scripture tells us she's a demoniac, which means there's demon possession going on. And it says that she's made her owners a ton of money by telling the future. Now, this is interesting to me because when I first read this scripture, I think, well, well, hold on. How, how does she know the future? Can demons really predict the future? Like, how powerful are they? Because sometimes I think our default is to think that Satan is the opposite of God. There's no opposite of God. Satan is a created being. Therefore, demons are created beings. To know the future, 
It's called being omniscient. And there's only one person in the universe, in the history of time, who is omniscient, which is all-knowing. In Westmoreland, they probably call it omni-science. Science. <laughs> Sorry if you're from Westmoreland. It just means all-knowing. The beginning from the end. And so, full disclosure, demons don't know the future. But... They are experts at human behavior and have been studying human behavior for a very long time. I spoke to somebody a few weeks ago. They came up and they said, man, if, if, if Satan doesn't know the future, then how's he know exactly where to come at me, man? And I said, well, it's because he's watched your dad, your granddad, your great-granddad. He knows what's going on in your family tree. He knows the generational curses that you may have the propensity towards. And so I think that the demons can be excellent predictors of human Human behavior and can predict the future most of the time. But what's interesting is my heart breaks for this young girl because if you were a demoniac, if you had this ability to tell the future or fortune telling or trick people into thinking that, men would discover you and they would try to make a profit off of you. And so normally when you see this in the scriptures, it's either from a very young girl or a very old, what they would call a witch. And so it would almost always be people trying to make money off of you, and no, there's no difference with this girl. But what's interesting is she's following around, and she's saying these men are servants of the Most High God. Did you know that even the demons know that Jesus is the Son of Yahweh, of El Shaddai. Even the demons know. In fact, Scripture says, and shudder, which are two words that I love in Scripture. That's right. You better you better shudder. You, you better be afraid. That's my Lord right there. But, but the, why is she doing that? To distract the crowds from actually listening to the message of the gospel. She's doing the right thing the wrong way, the wrong time, with the wrong intentions. And so by following them around, yelling things out, it's, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. You ever been in a church service before, and this is rhetorical, please don't say what church and don't point to anybody, when in the middle of what appears to be worship, something's going on that's, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. Oh, if it is distracting anything from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, it can be the wrong thing at the wrong time in the wrong situation. Then I would say, get behind me, Satan. So what's happening is she is distracting everybody. Paul, because he is annoyed, casts the demon out of her. We talked last week about Paul being this gloriously stubborn man and easily gets annoyed, which tends to be a trait of a lot of men in scripture. Like if you ever read that like Elisha calls out bears in the woods to come attack some random kids because they're making fun of him for being bald headed. Jeremy, can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> so if you're a grumpy old man, you could still be of God. Jeremy, can I get an amen? amen. Nah, I'm kidding. <laughs> Verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. That's going to be important. Underline that. And they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. This is the portion of scripture we started last week off with. 
After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. What's interesting is scripture tells us right here that this is in the inner cell. So if you know anything about a Roman prison, there was three different areas of a Roman prison. Now, the Romans had this figured out, by the way. There was no such thing as serving time in jail. Like, why on earth would you have the taxpayers pay for somebody to sit in jail and get free room and board and free meals? So the Romans, if you were in jail, it was just a wait trial before you received your punishment. It was basically like, hey, we're going to punish you. We're just trying to figure out which one is the most cruel and will work because behavior management works. It works when your kids are young. Why wouldn't it work for adults? That's what the Romans think. I'm not saying that we physically assault people. That's not what I'm saying, but it works. Uh, But (laughs) my mom spanked me all the time. Look how great I turned out, huh? (laughs) Just kidding. I never got spanked. (laughs) They had the outer court which would be like gin pop, general population, where people could, you know, get exercise and practice for the Olympics and, and all of that stuff. And then, and then they would have the, the outer cell, which is basically where they would go when they were out of the outer court. No such thing as having your own room or a roommate. It was one big room, and you just kind of all stayed in there. And, and then they had the inner cell. And the inner cell is where Paul and Silas find themselves. Now, I want you to picture what this would look like in your mind. One big room, chained, so no toilet. You got to defecate or urinate, go ahead. No fresh air, no windows, no hope. Maybe a torch or two lit, lit, maybe, where you can kind of see the glow. But that's it. And it was designed to break you. It was designed to punish you before you even get to trial. So that's where Paul and Silas find themselves. And so they're in this situation for doing the right thing. For what? For going where God told them to do. They could go over here. They go over there. And then proclaim the name of Jesus. Oh, no, by the way, you're going to get thrown in the inner cell. So that's where Paul and Silas find themselves. Now, this is a Monopoly board. We talked about this a little bit last week, but now's the time where you're going to land on go to jail, go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not. Okay, some of you played this before. Well, right here. Now, some of you also, like when you're just cruising by and one of the people you're playing against is in jail, you with like this patronizing tone, be like, just visiting. I'm not in jail like you. Now, some of you in this room have been incarcerated before, but but you probably haven't been in an inner cell and you probably haven't been in feet shackles and stuck in in a Roman prison. But I actually did a little bit of research to find how exactly you get out of jail when you're playing Monopoly. It's going to be a little different than Paul and Silas get out of jail, spoiler alert. But there's actually four different ways that you can get out of jail. Now, some of you have what's called house rules, in which somehow you've gone Pharisee on me and you created rules that don't actually exist. House rules. But I'm about to tell you, because I did a little research, all right? It's called Google, on 
how, because I didn't read the directions, I'm a man, come on, on how you can actually get out of jail according to the rules. And some of you are like, mm-hmm, no, that's not how we do it. That's called house rules, all right? Here are the four ways that you can actually get out of jail. And then I'm going to pull the audience because I want to know what you do. You can tell a lot about a person by how they handle go to jail, go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect First way to get out, throwing doubles on any of your next three turns. Yeah. Number two, use the get out of jail free card if you have it. Number three, purchasing the get out of jail free card from another player for an amount that you negotiate. And number four, paying a fine of $50 before you roll the dice on any of your next two turns. So, let's find out what you do to get out of jail. Be honest, this is a place where it's totally safe, outside of one dude on stage with a microphone that can make fun of you in front of everybody. But besides that, it's totally safe. The first way, how many of you are like, man, I'm just going to roll doubles and just wait my time. If I get out, I get out. We're going to go. Raise your hand if that's you. Okay. So, if you're raising your hand, that means you're cheap. You're probably wearing a shirt that's at least five years old. Oh, you got that for free at our men's retreat. Yeah. Wait, hold on. You didn't even go to the men's retreat. That worked out perfect. I need you to sit in the 11 o'clock service for me. God, number two. And if you have a get out of jail free card, of course you're going to use it, so I'm going to skip that. But you would negotiate purchasing that off of somebody to use because you're going to get the best deal. Raise your hand. Yep, I'm going to guess that if you're raising your hand, you probably bought your car used, but like two or three years old, so you didn't take the hit off the dealership. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Dave Ramsey style. Going to pay the 50 bucks right off the bat. All right, so keep your hands up. If your hands up, you probably don't mow your own yard. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder which one of these Paul would have chosen. Because what's interesting is we're about to, to go through scripture, and Paul, not one time does he ask for God to get him out. <coughs> Is that crazy? I would pray, God, get me out. Don't you know what I've done? I'm here because of you. And now look. But see, Paul at this stage is so spiritually mature that he has been trained and seen not to focus on the micro because God always looks at things macro. He didn't even pray to get out. I pray that God will let like a little stomach ache pass when I, when I eat something from a gas station. Like, God, now, now I'm not saying that there's something wrong with that, but I'm saying this. You want to know how you can tell your spiritual maturity? You want to know? This is going to hurt some of y'all. How do you act when you don't get your way in a church setting? How do you act? That will tell you your spiritual maturity. Not when you get your way. When you don't get your way. Or when you're like, man, that's not what I would do. But if that's what they said, I'm going to go for it. That's how you know your spiritual maturity. Don't mix age with spiritual maturity. You know how many people, when they don't like something, they take their ball and go home, and they treat church as if it's a consumer product based upon your happiness and what you desire? <laughs> but you're here, so you're not one of those people. <laughs> I 
want you to see verse 25 because verse 25 changes everything. Verse 25 should haunt you. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Here it is. And the other prisoners were listening to them. That one verse changes everything. So at midnight, they're praying and singing hymns. So for some of you that go to bed super early, Tom Price, if you go to bed super early, you're like, of course they're listening to them because it's midnight, bro. I, want to, I was asleep four hours ago. <laughs> of course they're listening to them. How many of you would like your cellmates singing at midnight? But here's the whole point. The other prisoners were listening. I'm in jail for doing the right thing. God, it's your fault. God, get me out of here. Macro, no, micro. Macro, no, micro. You're looking at your situation through the lens of this isn't fair to me. But Paul, Paul knew God looks at things macro. And there's a bigger picture than just my situational happiness. Oh, if somebody writes the biography of Jason Baugh, I would love if people looked at it and said, man, there was a couple things that happened to Jason, but he always looked at things macro and said, God's brought me this far. So the other prisoners are listening, and this is why it should haunt you. Because right now, right now, the world is watching to see how Christians act. Now, believe it or not, they don't really watch a whole lot as far as how little or a lot you sin. They, they want to see how the church is going to react during a time of crisis or when it seems like the bad guys are winning. Oh, they are watching. How are we going to act? Are we going to be spineless jellyfish that go with whatever the ebb and flow of pop culture is? Are we going to come back and attack are we going to wave this banner of we're better than you? Are we going to just out-argue them? Or are we going to out-love them? Oh, the world is watching right now how the church is reacting, just like they were then. Your children are watching how you react when you get squeezed what comes out. Or you could say words to your kids all day, and those are important, but they're watching how you act. My wife and I, we, we served in a student ministry for a very long time, and there was a girl, and, uh, and she uh, was, well, every, we had high, middle, high school kids over our house all the time. They ate all my food. And <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Actually, I can hear, I can hear John give an amen. You pay the youth pastors the least amount of money, but they all eat your food. It's like, I should get a food stipend for all of the kids that come over. But anyway, so this girl came, was over at our house all the time. And, <laughs> and uh, I remember this day that her father died. As she came over our house. Now, what are you supposed to say to a high school girl the day that her father dies? And he wasn't a great father, trust me, but he was still her dad. And we didn't say a whole lot. We just listened. And we were just there. But we were done listening. And tears were shed. 
I have no answer for you why. I have no answer. But I can tell you this, and I told her, I said, on your way home today, turn the radio off, and I want you to just sing praises in your voice to God. And she looked at me. Why? Because <laughs> it makes no sense. I said, you're right. But it's not fair. But if even today, on what is probably the worst day of your life so far, if you can still sing praises to God as you're driving home, how much does that mean to God? Man, on those days when it's like, I'm hurting, I'm disappointed, I don't get it, but you're still my Savior. You're still my King, and my hope is in you. How much would those praises mean to God on your worst day? Paul and Silas are singing hymns and praises out loud. And the other prisoners are listening. Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. That's a little dramatic. Let me tell you why, though. I have no problem with guys being dramatic. But according to Roman law, if you were in charge of prisoners and they escaped, it was a death sentence for you. So instead of me going on trial and sitting there and everybody knowing how worthless I am and possibly my family getting punished as well, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. That's where he is. Verse 28. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now, what's interesting to me is, at that point, I would have taken that as a sign from God. Like, the walls just crumbled. I would have been like, whoa, thank you, Lord. Let's go. But I think Paul, we don't have an indication in Scripture as to exactly what happened, but Paul didn't seem like he was in a hurry to go. Or he'd and he also never thought that this was from God, that God was the one that broke the walls down. And I think it's because he never asked for it. He never said, God, get me out of here. I'm just going to sing praises to you. It echoes the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, let this cup pass from me, but if not, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Macro, verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What we see right here in this portion of scripture is so powerful. Macro. What would have happened if they would have just said, God, get us out of here right now. Like, send Scotty, beam me up, I'm ready to go. But Paul recognized that even in the middle of this trial, in the middle of this hardship, not my will, but yours be done, because there's a bigger picture. Macro. There's a bigger picture. 
Now you may say, what's one guy with his friend sitting in the cell do? We did everything for the jailer. And here we are now, 2,000 years later, still having God speak to us through it. I love when some of you, I, I, let me preface this. I love when you, some of you tell me stories about how you went through a medical crisis, but through how you went through it, your family members that were far from God became believers in God. Or even how your, you, you know, the, um, the nurses and doctors and whoever's working in the hospital, that you had a chance to witness to them as you're going through this medical crisis. Like, I love hearing that stuff. I love hearing when people say that they're miserable at their job and none of their coworkers are believers. Why? Because I'm cruel? I love hearing that none of your coworkers are believers yet and that you're there every single day. I love it. I don't want you to go work at Lifeway. Nothing wrong with Lifeway. But the world is watching and is listening. I want to show you something. This is powerful. I think we have this picture, if you'll put this up. So, this is a picture of me a few years ago. I had the privilege, I didn't think it was a privilege at the time, I was voluntold. <laughs> you know, that is, that's when your boss says, hey, I need a volunteer. Jason, I need you to go do this. Yes, sir. To go to the Clay County Jail, as you could tell by the back of that guy's hand, on Good Friday and deliver an Easter message. Now, I don't know if you could tell by looking at me, I'm not exactly built for combat. <laughs> and when I went in there, like, I thought I was going to walk down the hallways as the dudes are in their cells, and I'm just talking like, hey, let me tell you about Good Friday. Hey, does that lock work? Yes, good. Okay, let me tell you about, but I walk into the room, and they're all just sitting there. Now, some of them were in feet shackles, but, but like, the room was smaller than this, and I'm like, I can't run that fast. These pants are too tight. <laughs> and they're all around me, and I'm sitting here thinking, at any moment, this could go bad. But we'll trust it. <laughs> and I start speaking to them. And this one guy, ah, oh, you can't even see him. He's blocked. He stands up, and he says, PJ, and I was like, I like that name. He said, can we pray for you? And I was like, can you, can you pray for me? You're in stripes. I'm in seminary. Can you pray for me? No, I didn't say that. I'd be mean, dude. I was like, this is powerful because these guys, every single one of those guys, I didn't tell you this part on purpose. A month prior, we baptized all 18 of them. All 18 of them. Let me say that again because this microphone is old. Y'all need to tithe more. <laughs> we baptized all 18 of them. And a month later, I'm in there, and now these guys say, can I pray for you? Because here's what, it, what they realized. God can use them right where they are. 
they don't have to sit there and wait until their time is up to be used by God. No, no, this is the day that the Lord has made. But you and I, we live our life sometimes to say, once I get out of here, once I move here, once I have this job, once I'm this age, once I'm here, then God will use me. And oh, no, 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 I don't see in Scripture where God can only use the future you. God's going to use you right now. Yeah, but Jason, I messed up. Yeah, I know you are. Put on a jersey. We all are. Let's go. So here's the last part. And this is important. Don't, don't start thinking right now about how you're going to beat the Methodist to lunch. Don't, don't check out now. Let me, let, me, let me, I want you to hear this. That joke's funny. <laughs> At the very beginning of this, I had you underline when the people accused them of being Jews and threw them in jail. And here's why. Don't miss this. Verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. That part's not the word. But it's basically what they're saying. Yep, we got word. Go, please, leave. And here's why. They wanted them to leave so fast. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though, underline this, we are Roman citizens and they threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us so quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Here's why. Paul's a Roman citizen. So what they did from the very beginning is illegal. It's against Roman law. They assumed that they were just simply Jews. But a Roman citizen could not be beat or put in jail before he had a trial. It's part of the right of a Roman citizen. What does that have to do with you and I? The subtitle of this message I'm giving to you now, it's just because I can, dot, dot, dot. Just because I can, dot, dot, dot. From the very beginning, Paul knew what they were doing was illegal. It was against his rights. He deserved to have a trial. He deserved to be treated better. Just because he deserved it, there was a bigger picture. You see, this whole thing about following Jesus is this crazy thing where we believe that a person we've never met died, rose from the grave. We are righteous because of what he did on the cross, and he's coming back for his people. It's crazy. But if you follow it, you got to follow it all in. And just because he deserved trial and didn't get it, he didn't even bother saying anything to anybody. Because what would it have done if the moment he got in jail, he started just saying, I shouldn't even be here. I can't believe y'all did this. I'm a Roman citizen. Take me out of this situation. And he just started complaining and all these reasons as to why this shouldn't be happening to him. And how do we act when something is done to us 
when there is an offense of some kind to us. Now, I know that just simply because of mathematics in a room this size, that some people in here statistically have had some terrible things done to you by other people. And I am not minimizing that. But what stands out to the world is just because I can doesn't mean I will. Just because I can hold on to unforgiveness because you don't deserve to be forgiven. Just because I can doesn't mean I will. And I will let God be God. And I will release that from me. You see, there's this thing that we do here at church, and to the outside it looks kind of silly, but what we do is we give the first 10% and trust that God will bless the other 90% of our money, and what we do with that is we kind of pool it together, and we use it to make an impact for the kingdom of heaven that would be a lot more difficult to do if it was just on one person. But some of you are like, hey, I'm not giving any of my money to that. I'm holding on to all of it. And just because you can... right? Ministry will always be inconvenient. It will always be messy. Loving on broken people that don't yet know God will always come with risk. And you don't have to. You can live your life and keep 100% of your time. You don't have to. Because you can. But this whole thing that stands out to the world right now that's watching is a group of people that say just because we can doesn't mean we will and we will trust God in the most difficult of circumstances and we will praise his name on the worst day of our life and we will declare that hope is found in Jesus and Jesus alone because the world is watching I'll end it with this I told you a little bit last week about the journey of my family and I coming here and and we took it serious. Full disclosure, I did not want to move here. No knock on you fine people. Most of you weren't even here anyway, but but I just didn't want to move. I've been in a town for 15 years. I knew lots of people. I lived next door to my 88-year-old great-grandma. And I had to look her in the eye and tell her, your great-grandchildren that you see every single day, you'll probably see maybe once a month now. That's a tough conversation to have. But we thought we could tell our kids about what it looks like to sacrifice what you can do for God all day. And it's important. But for the rest of my kids' life, they'll remember Well, we said, just because we can stay here and we can say no to what God is telling us to do, we're going to go. And we're going to trust God in the process. Now, what do you think they're going to remember? My words? Or that we did it? And so every single time that there's a baptism or a salvation, I tell my kids, because it's part of their inheritance too. Just because we can stay comfortable doesn't mean we will. 
Just because we can hold on to unforgiveness doesn't mean we will. Just because we can stand up and attack our attackers and put it under the guise of I'm just keeping it real and defending myself, just because we can doesn't mean we will. Let's be a church that loves the unlovable and that says, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is alive. I thank you that you're still speaking to your people. And I pray, Lord, for the 93,000 people in Sumner County that are currently unchurched, that you'll use us to be messengers of hope to them, Lord. I thank you for what you're doing in this church, for what you're doing in all of our lives, Lord. And that you never give up on your people, Lord. You will always pursue imperfect people. I love you and praise you and would do anything for you and all God's people said. Amen.